Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, this is Colin. So, um, I sound like I just called you up or something. But anyway, uh, <laughs> this the idea for this show wasn't mine, but the minute it was suggested by Josh Nalea, our producer on this uh, episode, I got really excited because this is so- something that I have been fascinated by for much of my life, but not productively fascinated by. Like, I haven't really answered any of these questions. And when I say this, to me, you know, I, I often do, I think, like 1913 in Vienna. So you've got, what have you got? You got Freud uh, is living there, uh, Trotsky, Lenin, Hitler, um, the future Marshal Tito. I know I'm missing a few people. And, and, and then you've got, like, that in 1913, Schoenberg has the so-called Skandal concert, which completely s- turns music on its ear, kind of concomitantly with Stravinsky's Red of Spring elsewhere. Um, you know, and then you throw in, I don't know, Klimt, who's living in Vienna. I mean, you got to live somewhere, right? But, like, what does it mean? What does it mean when all those people are living in the same place? And in the case of Vienna, a lot of them are even going to the same cafe. I think it was called the Cafe Central or something like that. So what does that mean? And to, to what degree do, is Vienna at that moment uh, a perfect cradle for these kinds of people? And to what degree do those kinds of people make Vienna a perfect cradle for this kind of foment? Uh, all right. So uh, we actually have people who can answer that question. All I could ever do is wonder about it. I've been wondering about it for far too long. So uh, joining us today is uh, Eric Weiner, uh, speaker and author of several New York Times bestsellers. His newest book is The Geography of Genius. You see where we're going here. A search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to the Silicon Valley. Uh, later on, we're going to have Maximilian Schick, who, an associate professor of arts and technology and head of cultural science lab at University of Texas at Dallas. He's done this kind of fascinating quantification of how how culture moves around and how people uh, who who drive culture and drive um, historical events move from one place to another and start co- congregating and coagulating in certain places. And then uh, towards the end of the show, we'll also talk to Joel Kotkin, uh, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University in California, and executive director of the Center for Opportunity Urbanism. His latest book is The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. A lot of this is the, sort of the question about, okay, so what's next? Where are the next places like that? What's the next Athens or Vienna? Uh, Eric Weiner is going to get us going, and he's going to be with us the whole way. Uh, welcome to the conversation, Eric Weiner. Thank you, Colin. Pleasure to be here. So let's talk about, first of all, let's kind of talk a little bit about the... So you de- you decided to make the term genius part of the kind of turning mechanism of this book. So when you say genius, what do you mean? Ah, good question. Um, a genius is someone that everyone agrees is a genius. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to be overly clever about it, but that that is is basically it. Uh, I firmly believe that genius is, in the end, a, a social verdict, you know, that uh, that we decide uh, as a society who who gets to be uh, a genius. Um, hopefully, we make good decisions, and they refer to people who make uh, uh, a, a leap. Um, you know, one of my my favorite uh, quotes about genius is from the philosopher Schopenhauer. He said, you know, when asked about the difference between 
talent and genius. He says, talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those are the people I'm speaking about, the ones who make those leaps. And, and as I said, the ones who we all sort of, you know, formally or informally agree, hey, you know, Einstein's a genius, Mozart's a genius. Uh, Colin, Eric, maybe not so much. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Um, all, all right. right. So um, – <laughs> And, and and like okay, so I rattled through some of those people who were in Vienna in 19, 1913. You know, some yeah. of them some of them are probably not geniuses. Marshall Tito, I don't think ever turned out to be a genius. Some people would say, I mean, like you know, in the most disgusting and evil way possible, that Hitler's a genius. Uh, I don't know whether yeah, 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 people would say you know an evil genius mm-hmm. or not to you know throw in Steve Jobs in the same sentence as Hitler, but you know, that Steve Jobs was a marketing genius. People who dismiss him. Um, First of all, my feeling is that if you the second you start modifying the word genius, yep. forget about it. You know, okay. we don't just refer to Einstein as a scientific genius, or really even Mozart as a musical genius. The, the true genius, first of all, transcends their field, so they require no modification. And the evil part, no, I mean, geniuses, by my definition, make the world a little better uh, than the way they found it. Uh, leave the world a little better than when they found it. And, and you know, I think that's a, a fair definition. So you've got six uh, genius zones, ancient Athens, Silicon Valley, Hangzhou, uh, Florence, Edinburgh, Calcutta, and Vienna. Um, I, well, it's going to blow the whole show up. I have you go through all of them. But, I mean, <laughs> um, if you were to pick one or two and just sort of say, okay, what are the defining things? I mean, Florence, I think we can we sort of get it. It's Da Vinci. It's Michelangelo. I mean, you really start talking pretty quickly about, you know, people who don't exist uh, anywhere else and, and who are easily definable as geniuses. Were there others where you have to kind of, I don't know, convince people? Uh, well, the, certainly the non-Western uh, clusters that I that I went to, and I did travel to all these places, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, Hangzhou, China, uh, in the 12th, 13th centuries, uh, was the b- biggest city in the world by far, a uh, population of a million plus, while you know the biggest city back in Europe had maybe a population of 50,000. Um, so while the Europeans were, you know, pitting, picking... Uh, gnats out of each other's hair and, and wondering when the dark ages would ever end. Uh, the people of Hangzhou were producing huge sailing ships. They were inventing the compass, uh, early forms of printing, creating great literature and artwork. Um, you know, it, it, convincing people, yes, in the sense, I don't have to convince Chinese people that Hangzhou was a, a place of genius, but uh, I do have to convince many Westerners of that. And probably the biggest one, I think, would be Calcutta, um, because it's so associated with poverty and Mother Teresa and all that. But the fact is that for a while in in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century, it really was uh, at the center of a golden age called the Bengal Renaissance and produced Rabindranath Tagore, the first non-Westerner to win the Nobel Prize for Literature and many, many others. Um, So... Yeah, it's just a, it's a matter of what we're aware of, what, what's what's in our, our zone, our genius zone. Did you intentionally exclude some of the perennial favorites, the usual suspects? I mean, uh, Paris, uh, New York City, London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paris, people write to me and say, why didn't you write about Paris? Um, French publishers write to me and say, why didn't you write about <laughs> Paris? Um, you know, to be honest, um, uh, Woody Allen's movie about Paris in the 20s had just come out when I was working on the book. What was that called? See, uh, Midnight in Paris, yeah. Midnight in Paris, yes, that's it. And uh, and it, it seemed familiar. Um, it seemed overly familiar. And so many of the uh, 
so many of the characters uh, there were were expats, were Americans, uh, like Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, and others. Um, and uh, you know, I wanted to I wanted to find places a little a little less familiar to write about. Well, also, I mean, I think the other case you, you make for Paris is Par- the Paris of Voltaire. But the Paris of Voltaire is the Edinburgh of Hume, right? You decided yes. you had to pick the Enlightenment, put the Enlightenment somewhere. You decided to put it in, in because that's, exactly. yeah, yeah, you decided and to put par- it in. Par- partly because the, the, the Scottish Enlightenment had this sort of direct effect on the U.S., uh, the formation of our country and the, and the revolution here, um, that, you know, Benjamin Franklin, for one, was a regular visitor to Edinburgh. A lot of the ideas of uh, for what makes America America came out of Edinburgh of the you know late 18th century. So um, I saw that connection and um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I could have included many more places. Uh, it would be a 2,000 page book and nobody right. would read it. I mean, I would think the other pushback that you might get would be from the Muslim world that they would say the caliphate somewhere around 800. I, I, I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you about that. I did consider um, writing about you know the famous say House of Wisdom. Uh, in Baghdad in the ninth century right. A.D., um, and, or writing about other places like Damascus and Aleppo, and uh, and the, the honest truth is that you know since I was traveling to all these places, that was my criteria. Um, it did not really seem safe to go to Baghdad <laughs> or Damascus. Um, I did not want my obituary to read "author killed while researching book on genius," um, and so that frankly was a problem. Um, it does underscore, though, doesn't it, how the fortunes change for these places. Um, you know, yesterday's golden age is today's war zone and vice versa. Right. And and uh, and how they look to us, I think, changes and, and how difficult it is to persuade people who have a 2017 image of Baghdad, what Baghdad would have been in the 800s uh, is, you know, it's something that people. Well, let me ask you this question. Did you come to some conclusions about what conditions have to obtain for a place to be one of these these cradles? Yes. Um, first of all, with very few exceptions, uh, it, it takes a city. You know, if it if it takes a village to raise a child, as the African proverb goes, it, it takes a city to to make a genius. Almost all these places are cities. There's something uh, about uh, about urban density. Uh, about the kind of interactions that go on in an urban environment that lend themselves to genius. Um, the one exception, which we can get to in a bit, is, is uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, another thing is there has to be diversity, not ethnic diversity, not that only at least, but real intellectual diversity. Um, you know, psychologists, when they're looking at, you know, what makes for a creative person, a creative personality, they sort of home in on one trait. Uh, and that's openness to experience. Very simple, but incredibly important. And I think that's true of creative people. It's also true of creative places. They have to be open to experience. You don't see a lot of geniuses coming out of North Korea right now. It's not that there aren't smart people in North Korea or hardworking people, but there's not that openness to experience. So um, that's necessary. And also, um, what I found a bit surprising, Colin, looking at these places, you know, I sort of picture, you know, Renaissance Florence or classical Athens as, you know, these sort of idyllic garden-like atmospheres where people are plucking grapes and singing, reciting poetry to one, to one another. The more I dug into it, the more I found out how nasty and brutish and short, in fact, these places were. I see um, what you did there, by the way. 
Yes, they were. They were. They were not paradise. Um, you know, classical Athens, 400 BC, was kind of a dump, even by the standards of the time. You know, other people would come to Athens and say, "This is the great Athens." I mean, you know, mm. people were leaving themselves in the streets, and 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 you know, the houses were so flimsy, robbers would just dig through them to get inside. Um, even by the standards of the day, it was chaotic and dirty and messy. But that, you know, that that help, that that messiness is important. Same thing with Florence of 1500, you know, besieged by enemies, just bouncing back from the Black Death, which wiped out a third of the population. And and there they go. So um, paradise, if it exists, is probably the least creative place in the world because um, because you have nothing to push against. Um, you know, and that it, that I, I come to conclude is essential for creativity is it, it is a reaction, a response uh, to constraints. Well, yeah. And so on the other hand, I think uh, and, and I'm kind of referring a little bit to the work of Deirdre McCloskey on this. You, you can't have a civilization that's living totally hand to mouth. Right. People have to have the, right. the ability to pick up a pen or, or a flute or a brush. They, they have to be at least. Uh, far enough removed from subsistence economy to be able to do other stuff, right? Absolutely. And so the, the, the myth of the starving artist is really just that, uh, a myth. Um, you know, the starving artist doesn't produce anything except for hunger, you know. Uh, so, yes, you, you, you need to have uh, something. You need to have um, some basic needs met. Um but, you know, there's that law of diminishing returns. There's that 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 point beyond which more of that stuff doesn't make you more creative. It makes you less creative. Um, you know, there's this notion of the curse of oil, uh, often used to refer to the, the Persian Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Uh, you know, they are blessed or cursed, if you will, uh, with all this oil. So that means they have nothing to push against. They don't they don't have to be creative. Um, so, yeah, you need the basics. Uh, but beyond that, there is such a thing as too much. And I think also you, you kind of referenced this with North Korea, but you need a culture in which innovation is rewarded. I mean, that sounds like a pretty obvious thing to say. But why didn't China produce more genius, more innovation, you know, a after the revolution? Well, because, right, there, were, there was no real reward system for that. Um, you could probably track uh, successful patent applications. Uh, at least that's sort of sweet spot between the time that you can right. you, know, you can get a you can get a patent if you're somebody or an individual who innovates, and then but the sweet spot ends when like Disney controls all the patents and nobody gets nobody can innovate about anything anymore. Yeah, because, you know. um, it gets a uh, one caveat there. It, there's a there's a debate within the creativity community, people who study this full time between. Uh, the virtues of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So what you just described is essentially extrinsic motivation. You're assuming that the reward comes from out, outside, um, you know, that you, you, know, you receive money, you're rewarded financially for your innovation. Um, there's a, a big body of knowledge, um, re really started by a, a Harvard uh, psychologist named Teresa Amabile, called the intrinsic theory of motivation. And she, in the lab, she's, you know, given see two groups uh, a bunch of material to said go build a collage and the first group you know is is you know rewarded handsomely and told that their work will be made public etc the second group's told just to have fun uh in the lab at least it's often the second group uh the one told just to have fun that produces the more creative collage um i have some problem with that because 
you know, as you're alluding to, what about competition? Athletes seem to perform better in the heat of, uh, of, of the sporting event more than they do in practice. Um, I think the answer lies in that for complete beginners, competition sort of squelches the creative impulse. But once you're a fairly accomplished musician or artist, competition will help you up your game. Right. R- rivals, rivals are good. I mean, Voltaire and Rousseau probably made each other uh, a, a little bit better. Hey, we have to go to a break pretty soon here, but let's, um, you know, there are a lot of sweet spots that you're talking about here. You sort right. of raise this in the middle. And I think there's another one that, <laughs> that you, 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 you lay out in a very amusing way. I always, always think about coffee and the Enlightenment. You know, people started drinking coffee, they stopped drinking less alcohol. They hung around in coffee houses. There were people from, you know, different levels of society who might gather there and remember what they said the next morning. But you actually, make a pretty interesting case for a certain sweet spot of alcoholic beverages uh, being uh, a, a lubricant to genius. Tell us about that. Uh, well, you know, I, I suspected from personal experience and experience of others that there might be something to it. And, and um, you know, Winston Churchill, you know, famously said that, you know, booze was his muse, that he could not have written this six-part masterpiece uh, memoir uh, six volumes if it wasn't for, I'm not sure what his favorite drink was, probably scotch, something like that. Um, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence. There's been some studies done where they, you know, they find college students, students willing to, you know, drink alcoholic beverages for money in a lab and, you know, and they, uh, they give them a certain amount of alcohol just below what would be inebriated, you know, considered a neat, too drunk to drive essentially. Uh, and uh, they find that, in fact, they do on these creativity tests that they're given afterwards uh, perform better um, with um, the sort of uh, imaginative thinking that allows you to come up uh, with with new ideas. Um, they don't do so well when it comes to the sort of consolidation process of sort of consolidating your insights once you have them. So that speaks to the problem of you have a brilliant idea after a few drinks, but you can't remember it in the morning. Um, I think essentially a little bit of alcohol will make you more creative, but a lot of alcohol will make you fall down. Yes. So hence, you prove that the, the the cheap skatery of the Scots and watering down their alcohol actually probably uh, helped them with the Enlightenment. All right. We have to take uh, – I just had to get a, a Scottish dig in there. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more of this. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. All right, we are talking very much about sort of the geography of genius, uh, of innovation, uh, innovation, creativity. Eric Weiner is with us. His book is The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. We're going to add to the conversation right now uh, Maximilian Schick, uh, Associate Professor of Art and Arts and Technology and Head of the Cultural Science Lab at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, Maximilian Schick, thanks for joining this conversation. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it's very great to be on the show. So the work that you've done has also has included this really in- interest, interesting centuries-long demographic study of where people are born, where they die, how they migrate, how they move culture around, how culture collects in certain places. Uh, were there any overarching principles that you extracted from that research? 
Yeah, um, so we found the so-called laws of migration, which uh, are known for demographic data since the late 19th century. And they include, for example, the size distribution of cities, which follows the so-called SIPS law, the growth of how cities grow over the population size. So the, the size of the cities grows slower than the population itself. In the late 19th century, that's something we did not find because we, uh, the, the public available data is too biased. Um, it was found that women move more than men, uh, which may have to do with uh, the demographic data was uh, English back in the 19th century. And there, um, basically, that was a kind of societal um, sort of norm. Um, and these, these kind of patterns are interesting because uh, they also include people going to their places of interest. So what we found um, different from the demographic data is um, actually, and that was the initial um, sort of ignition of the whole project, was we looked at antiquarians in the 18th century, and we had 250 of them. And these 250 antiquarians predominantly died in Paris, Rome, and Dresden. And mm -hmm. as you know, these are all places where, which have either large antiquarian collections or donors who spend money on this. So our big question was, how does this look for 120,000 people, 150,000 people? And so we used public data, which was then called Freebase. Um, today, you would use Wikidata and Wikipedia, um, which is the structured version of Wikipedia and the proprietary artist database, which had about 100 times more artists than are basically publicly available in Wikipedia. And we found the same patterns. So I want to talk about a couple of things um, that, that you found. I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting, and it goes back to Eric's work, is that um, there are some places where everything's focused in maybe a single city or a couple of cities. So you've got sort of Paris and maybe Avignon or some. But in Germany, for example, there there could be lots of different places or, or at least a, a multiplicity of places that were all kind of maybe cultural destinations or cultural mm -hmm. cradles. Yeah, um, actually, um, you touch on a very interesting point. Uh, so France in general, uh, you can still see to this day that about 70% of all the action goes on in Paris. Uh, so if you're a notable person in France, your probability to die in Paris is about 70%. Uh, while in Germany, it would be about 20% to die in Berlin. And, um, you know, there is at least four other centers that uh, have the potential to go to that kind of realm, but no city has ever taken more than 20% of the notable people. And whenever, you know, as you know, when one city adds another landing strip on their airport or opens a new international airport, two other cities are at least talking about like adding another landing strip in essence. So that there is a kind of regime of competition, of multi-centric competition, which we find in Germany, uh, in um, uh, Eastern China, we find it in um, northwestern India over centuries. We find it in Belgium and the Netherlands. We find it in northern Italy, to some extent in the Midwest and the U.S. Um, and the other um, big regime is centralization, such as in France, such as in the Philippines, such as in South Korea, such as in Japan. And so the interesting thing there is uh, that this can be explained without even looking at the content. You don't even need to look at the people. But it's basically um, an, a network dynamics regime that can be modeled with a mathematical model in a very, very, very simple way. And the difference is, in essence, the starting condition and um, one parameter slide uh, changed a little bit. And so you end up in this kind of what's called 
fit gets richer regime, which is multi-centric competition, or winner takes all, which would be Paris. So, um, Eric, uh, I want to bring you back into the conversation. I was looking at this um, kind of animated realization of Max's data, and, and this name flew by that I just happened to recognize. It was Whaley, and it was flying by from you know, England to uh, to the east coast of the, of the United States, but or to North America. And, and I just happened to know that as a restoration name. They're fleeing, basically, the restoration of Charles II. Whaley thinks he's going to have his head cut off. But, I mean, you know, one of the things that that happens is... And that so affects the kind of thing that you're talking about. And I, I think the the most, you know, extreme version is Jews leaving Europe, you know, in in droves. Some of the most brilliant people in the world are trying to get out of a place that, you know, that formerly had had nurtured and cultivated their abilities. Um, so, Eric, when you look at that, I mean, <coughs> what do you see in terms of it kind of yeah. throwing off the calculations? No, that, that's a, it's a good question. That's one aspect we haven't talked about yet is the relationship between immigration uh, and, and creative genius. And, you know, a, a disproportionate number of creative geniuses were immigrants or refugees. Um, you look at it, the list, it's, it's incredible. Freud, Einstein, Marie Curie, to name a few. Um, this past year, I think something like six out of seven of the Nobel Prize winners given to Americans were immigrants, people not born in the U.S. Um, so you ask, you know, what is it about the immigrant experience that makes people creative geniuses? And it's partly, you know, that that they're hungry to succeed and to, to make a name for themselves and to prove themselves in the new world. But I think that that doesn't fully explain it. I also think that the immigrant brings a different perspective and that they, you know, we were talking about sweet spots earlier. The, the immigrant ideally occupies a sweet spot between insider and outsider, you know, like Freud, an outsider in Vienna, um, an outsider uh, as a Jew, certainly, but an insider uh, in that his ideas were given an audience and hearing. And um, I think that's what the immigrant brings to the table. Um, you know, uh, to that, uh, you're making me think, uh, Eric, and I'm going to turn this back to Max. You're making me think of the musical yeah. Hamilton right now, which kind of makes that argument, right? That and, and Max, this is certainly there in the patterns that you see. You've got a lot of people coming from the old world to the new world, from Europe uh, to North America. But you've also got people like Hamilton coming up from Navas or wherever it is he's from, you know, and, and Lafayette coming in from France, that, that in a way to have foment uh, one of the things that you can do is get a whole bunch of people in one place in a way that they've never been there before. I don't know. Max, do you want to say something, something about that? Yeah. Um, so you can also see this in the U.S., as you, as you just said. So if you look in the um, basically across the land, uh, if you're, you're born sort of randomly, right? And if you're born in a small little village that doesn't have a church organ and you want to be an organist, um, you probably move to the next good organ. Uh, if you're lucky, if you probably don't know that you want to be an organist, but, uh, you know, you need to have the opportunity uh, to do certain things. And uh, I think this is something which you can see in many, many places. R people move out of rural places, but that does not mean that only cities and only the largest cities are the awesome places to hang out. Actually, we find um, attractive and not so attractive places where people more move out or more move in. Um, at all sizes of the distribution. And if you take a specific size, say cities of a million inhabitants, cities of 10,000 inhabitants, you find a kind of sigma distribution of 
cities that are, you know, what would you on average expect at that size, but then also cities that underperform or overperform. But And of course, there is another diversity in there, which is by genre, right? There are certain places where it may be easier to do a music career, while in other places it may be easier to become um, a captain on a ship, right? Obviously, you need a port city for that. Um, yeah, Eric, uh, we're almost out of time in this segment, so I probably shouldn't bring this up. But obviously, crossroads cities are really interesting in this way. I mean, one of the reasons Jerusalem is Jerusalem, you know, for a number of years, it's it's a Romano-Judean civilization, you know. So you have, I mean, you have somebody like Paul, who's educated by the Sanhedrin, but then becomes a tool of the Roman Empire. But then, you know, there's Christians around too. He finds out about them, and we know how that story goes. Uh, but I would imagine a crossroads. And don't answer this for more than about 60 seconds is a really interesting place to you. Yeah, no, almost all these places. In fact, I won't say almost all these places are crossroads. You have intersections of of people from different different backgrounds with different thoughts colliding. Uh, And, you know, sometimes they collide in a productive way and and you get an Athens or or a Florence or, or a Silicon Valley. Um, and sometimes they collide in a, in a non-productive way and, and you have uh, a war, essentially. And I have to say, you know, I, I appreciate the, the work Max is doing because it helps to sort of quantify this phenomenon. But there is still, I think, remains an element of mystery of why some places uh, are as crossroads flourish and, and others disintegrate into uh, internecine war. Um we don't really know why. Right. And and then you have these people who are just, you know, I mean, to Max's point about all those German cities, you've got Kant who never leaves Königsberg. He's just right. there the whole time. He doesn't want to go anyplace else. He likes to see, take the same walk every day. He doesn't need to be in Vienna. He doesn't need to be in Paris. So there are, there are people like that, too. All right. We have to take a break. If you like this conversation, if this kind of conversation is something you find here and not many other places. Please support this radio station and support this show right now in its time slot. That's very important to do. And when these nice people ask you, say yes, say yes. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. My producers and I have a really simple philosophy. We do things that interest us and that we think you'll find interesting. We don't have any other category. We, there, anything can be a show, including things that seem on the surface as though maybe they wouldn't make good shows. We take that as a challenge. So if you're here, I'm guessing maybe you've already figured that out. You like it. You recognize it as unique. Maybe you'll even donate to uh, help it make it possible. To do that, you can go to WNPR.org. Org, click on the Donate Now button, or you can call 1-800-584-2788. If you do all that stuff, thank you. And even if you just listen, thank you for that. Greatest flowering of canine genius? Athens Dog Park, circa 400 BC. They figured out so much, especially the thing about not chasing bird shadows moving around the ground because they're not real birds. Who knew? Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish invented Ron Popeil. The part of Bill Curry was played by Isaac Newton. And now, back to Colin.
we're talking about now is the geography of genius, um, how, in fact, certain places become incredibly influential or become these crucibles for the distillation of innovation uh, uh, and, uh, and foment. Uh, so with us, Eric Weiner, he's been with us the whole way. His book is The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. We're going to add to the conversation Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in California and Executive Director of the Center for Opportunity Urbanism. His latest book is the human city, urbanism for the rest of us. So, Joel Kotkin, I'm going to have you and Eric talk about the, actually the one place in Eric's book that isn't really exactly a city, but uh, is obviously one of the most creative places, at least uh, the case can be made, and that is the Silicon Valley. Um, and so, uh, Joel, I'm going to have you start. I mean, you know, when you rank cities, you talk about places like Singapore and, and London and, and New York and Hong Kong. And, and then there's this other place. And, and how, do, how do we think about the Silicon Valley in, term, in, the, in the way that we think about, let's say, urbanism? Well, I, first of all, the Silicon Valley, if you extend it to San Francisco, is really different kinds of places. I mean, uh, San Francisco, really very late, uh, sort of essentially was occupied by Silicon Valley, if you will. Yeah. Um, of course, so many people in San Francisco aren't so happy about it. Um, but I think it, the important thing about Silicon Valley, a lot of this is you know, simply a matter sometimes of luck, timing, um, you know, of course, you know, some uh, vision. Um, um, I started covering Silicon Valley in the mid-'70s, um, and at that time it was certainly emerging, but it was not the dominant center um, that it's become. Um, and there were several things that really drove it. One was, in those days, um, the Santa Clara Valley was a lovely place to live. It was you know, a lot of fruit orchards and is still sort of bucolic California. And housing was relatively inexpensive. Um, then um, it, uh, it, it really took off um, as venture capital became more and more important. And really today, what Silicon Valley has more than anything else is money. It, it, in other words, you can have a great idea, a great technology, but you don't go there necessarily Silicon Valley because, oh, they have the technology. There are plenty of places in America and around the world that have great technology. It's where the money is. Fifty percent of the venture capital is in one place. And so what we see all the time, and you know, I live in Southern California, and there's a whole history of companies rising in Southern California doing really interesting things and simply being bought by Silicon Valley. Um, and so that's, you know, in many ways, Silicon Valley has become more like Wall Street, another one of those places with a unique history. You, uh, for lots of reasons, New York, I think you were talking about intersections. New York was a classic intersection. Um, it became the financial capital. And one of the things I've learned in my life um, is the power of inertia. Once you have something and you have a dominant uh, share of it and you've built up the infrastructure for it, it's really very hard to displace that person or that place. Like, take Hollywood. Hollywood um, evolved in the 1910, 1920 period. And uh, with all the efforts to overcome it, it's still, uh, it's still pretty dominant. But I do think that there are some serious changes that are coming around from technology. And most importantly, in the case of Silicon Valley, housing prices, which are beginning to drive individuals and I think eventually companies uh, to look at other parts of the country just because simply speaking we've never seen this kind of um, sort of price relative to incomes that that we now see in Silicon Valley I'll be talking about three four times higher um, 
a price a price of a house compared to incomes than in other places. And we're starting to see slow, big slowdown in what's happening in the valley. And um, after a really interesting period where it was beginning to again attract people from the rest of the country. Now they're beginning to lose people at a pretty rapid rate. So, Eric, I want to so, I want to bring you uh, back into this conversation. I mean, once again, we're I think we're back to sweet spots, you know, and, and yeah. the analogy that he makes to Hollywood is an interesting one, because in you know, at a certain point, people started shooting movies in Vancouver, and places like that, because Hollywood was too expensive uh, you know, a place to work. And 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 I'm thinking, you know, you are seeing people being priced out of Silicon Valley. I'm wondering how much longer it can be. It, it can be something, but maybe not the cradle of genius it used to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with uh, with Joel that, that Silicon Valley is not really about technology at all. I mean, it's it's about money, and I would put it a slightly different way. It's a system. It's a, a system for sort of curating uh, the best ideas that are the bad ones and then fast-tracking the ones that are considered good. And yes, funding them. Um, I don't fully agree with, with Joel about the inertia. I think that lasts up to a certain point. But if you look historically, you know, these golden ages, they don't last that long, you know, in the scheme of history, uh, a few decades, maybe a century or a bit more. Uh, and then they sort of just lose that creative edge and they get they get complacent, they get arrogant. Um, and to me, that, that I see as the biggest danger to Silicon Valley losing its its dominant position is is not necessarily housing prices. I think as long as it has peop- something to offer young creative types, they'll they'll get a bunch of roommates and make it work. I think it's it's the complacency of being you know you start an Apple or Google as the underdog and then your top dog and and you know creativity means rocking the boat, the status quo. But if you are the status quo, you're not going to rock it. Well, I, I'm also thinking that there's, Joel, a difference between influence and creativity, influence and innovation. So I'm like, Hong Kong's on your list of influential cities. I mean, no young creative person is going to go live in Hong Kong. You can't do it. Even if you get 20 roommates, you can't live in Hong Kong. You know, but, but Hong Kong's very influential in a different way. Well, Hong Kong, though, a lot of it has to do with, you know, remember, they're drawing on all of China. Uh, and so you can find almost anything you want, in, 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 you know, with that big of a sample to draw on. But I think what is happening in the Valley um, is exactly what, what uh, you know, what Professor Wiener was saying, that I thought it was very uh, accurate. They are becoming complacent. Um, and not only it, but one of the things that we're seeing in this particular wave is the buying up of whether they're located in the valley or located anywhere else, buying up companies. I mean, we had this case um, down in Southern California, Oculus, which is really sort of the cutting-edge um, virtual reality firm. A whole, everything developed down in, in Irvine, and and uh, uh, Zuckerberg sees a threat, he buys it. Mm. Um, and the concentration of money that we haven't seen before, but, but there's a kind of arrogance, which I think is, is true, that you just – you you know if you can't you know beat somebody or you're not really better than them you simply buy them and i think that's and i think there's there's a positive for the valley in that but there's a negative as well and i can tell you i think that we we are i think low over time the incredibly high prices are going to be a problem and there's something very unique that's going on in silicon valley and, and of course in this loony bin state that I live in California. Hey, before, before we run out of time, I want to ask both of you, and I'm going to start with you, Eric Weiner. Um, 
you know, uh, some friends of mine who live in the Bay Area, and for all the reasons that we've been talking about, they are getting priced out. And it's not just real estate. It's the $28 hamburger. It's like everything starts to chase that real estate price up. And so, you know, they're looking at Pittsburgh because a lot of people feel like Pittsburgh is going to be like a new Bay Area. I made them take a tour of New Haven. New Haven actually is, uh, you know, a city where the real estate prices are are way reasonable compared to the Bay Area. And there's a creative class there. But Eric, as you try to think about the next city that could be added to the list in your book or the next cities, what what yeah. strikes you? So um, difficult to predict. If I could, I, you know, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be on my yacht somewhere, but uh, I'll take a stab at it. Um, you know, Austin, Texas, interesting, you know, famously keep Austin weird. Um, in the U.S., I, like, I would place a bet on Austin. Uh, internationally, I think Berlin is is an interesting place, partly because you've got – it's not just technology. There's a thriving artistic scene. Mm-hmm. And that's something we haven't really talked about is how you know these, these places of genius, the, the sparks are flying in many different directions typically. Silicon Valley is a bit of an exception. It's kind of a one-note town. Um, and uh, I have to put in a plug-in for, for Tallinn uh, in Estonia. The technology I'm using to speak with you today, Skype was invented there. And um, I think there's a, there's a creative buzz beyond just the technology world in Estonia, even though people would say, Estonia, really? <laughs> um, you never know. Get your timeshare now. Uh, all right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Joel, I've only got about a minute left. What, what, what would you add to that list? Well, Austin's a good choice. Um, I think Seattle um, is hitting it pretty strongly. I think um, it has many of the characteristics of the Bay Area, and although it's not cheap, it's about half the price. Uh, those those would be places I would look at. You know, you have to put Singapore somewhere in this equation. I think it's um, it, it's, it's got a very unique infrastructure. It's got a very high education level, and unlike all the other Asian city, cities, is built around immigration. So it gets really people from all over the world who come to Singapore. Uh, so those would be sort of, I would say, sit, Seattle, Austin, Singapore are the three that come to mind off the top. Great choices. We're going to have to wrap right now. I want to thank both of these terrific guests and also Maximilian Schick, who uh, joined us earlier today. Eric Weiner's uh, book is The Geography of Genius. Joel Kotkin's is The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Thanks especially to Josh Nalea, who conceived of this show and brought it to fruition. Hey, people are going to ask you to support us, and we really want you to do it, and we really want you to do it now during our time slot because we'll get credit for it. So if this is the kind of show you like, this is the kind of bunch of people you like to visit with, when these nice people ask you to make a pledge, make a pledge, please. 